Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is James chapter 1, verse 19, to chapter 2, verse 13. This is the fourth in a five-part sermon series called Race and the Gospel, in which we have tried to focus our attention on the gospel of Jesus Christ and consider what the implications of that gospel are when it comes to the subject of race and racism. This week's passage from James follows on last week's from Colossians chapter 3, when we considered the fact that, according to Paul, we Christians have died and have been raised with Christ, that we have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. In short, that the gospel has brought about a new creation reality in our very lives. We considered the implications of that fact as Paul outlines them. Put on then, he said in verse 12 of Colossians 3, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And if you were with us last week, you likely remember that the love, Paul says, binds everything together in perfect harmony had a very explicit context, didn't it? It was the multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multicultural context of the body of Christ. Right in the heart of Colossians 3, we considered at some length the astonishing statement Paul makes in verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so last week we concluded that it is in how we as God's people overcome divisions of race, culture, and social status, and how we demonstrate and advocate for those kingdom realities in the world that the power of the gospel is clearly displayed. Already this morning, I suspect you realize we're not far from that Pauline line of thinking when we turn now to James chapters 1 and 2. Last week, my primary purpose was to discuss how the gospel kills the hostility, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, between people groups. The answer we saw from Colossians 3 is that it does that by changing us so that we live in light of the truth, that here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. This morning, I want us to turn to James to think into this a bit further. If in Colossians we were focused on how this change comes about, in James I hope to end up at least focusing on why. Why does it matter how we treat people? Does it really matter? 
How big a deal is it really? Whether in the church we live in light of that stunning truth that Paul gave us in Colossians uh, 3, verse 11. That's where I hope to go this morning. And to get there, I want us to consider the lengthy text from James that Shina read a little earlier in the service. As always, I encourage you at home to have your Bibles open to that text so that you can follow along. The main point for us this morning will come from the second half of the passage, beginning in chapter 2, but I included verses 19 to 27 of chapter 1 because I want us to see that James begins in the same place Paul does. His metaphors and his terminology are different, but the transformational reality underneath it all is the same. And to see that most clearly, I actually should have started our reading this morning in verse 18 of chapter 1 of James. Have a look at James 1, verse 18, if you have your Bible there. James writes there, Of his, that is God the Father's, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I think it's important to see that what James describes in chapter 1, verse 18, is actually the foundation for everything that comes after it in the passage we read this morning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. In other words, God regenerated us, if we're Christians. The phrase brought us forth indicates it was an act of creation. Just as Paul said, our new self was created by God in Colossians chapter 3. We were created, produced, born, not referring to our first creation or our first birth, but to our new creation, to our new birth. For James, this is done by the word of truth. We are given this life through the word. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 1 verse 23. You have been born again, Peter says there, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And what is that word? Peter tells us in verse 25 of 1 Peter 1, this word is the good news that was preached to you. It's the gospel. And we can say on the basis of other texts of Scripture that the way this happens is by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is the one who carries this good news, this spoken good news that we've heard, into our hearts that we might embrace it. In John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus says it is the Spirit who gives life. But then note the connection Jesus makes next. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It's right to say then that we are born again. We are brought forth by the spirit as it is also right to say we are born again or brought forth by the word. The spirit dwells in us and the word is implanted in us. 
In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, Paul says, When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I say all this so you understand that this is the conceptual world within which James operates as we come to our text this morning. As Christians, we have been created anew by the word with the result that we are first fruits of God's renewed creation. This is why James says in chapter 1, verse 21, which Shiner read earlier, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. It's why he then says in chapter 1, verse 22, that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. The woman or the man who responds rightly to God's indwelling, transformative word will see fruitfulness in their life. It is the new creation reality of which Paul and James and Peter and Jesus all speak. So it is with that reality in view that James then, in our passage, does what he so often does in his letter. He attacks false, superficial spirituality. In verses 23 and 24 of chapter 1, James says, One who hears the word of God and goes away with no recognizable transformation is as foolish as a man who looks in the mirror and then immediately forgets what he looked like. God calls his people to peer into his word and to respond with faith, to repent of sin, and to live in persevering obedience. And so at the end of chapter 1, in verses 26 and 27, before James will focus on what I think is his central concern in chapter 2, he first gives examples of what he's talking about here. James gives us a negative example in verse 26, and then a positive one in verse 27. There is worthless religion, and then there is pure or authentic religion religion. Verse 26 of James chapter 1, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Such a person thinks they are religious, but actually they are not. Why? Because their thinking so is a form of self-deception. Such a person deceives their own heart as to its true spiritual state. If we do not bridle our tongues, our Christianity is a sham, James says. Why? Because the tongue tells the truth about the heart, whatever we might think about ourselves. Which sounds super intense, as James often is. But it's actually just James channeling his brother. Matthew 12, verse 34, Jesus says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. By your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I'm not sure what kind of tongue bridling 
you think of when you read this verse in James, but perhaps there's an indication of where James is heading in chapter 2 when we notice what he has to say about the tongue later in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. If you want, you can look there. James writes in chapter 3, verse 8, the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. With what sort of unbridled tongue is James concerned? Well, later in his letter, at least, the focus seems clear. It's in how we talk about other people. The fact that all people are made in the likeness of God is the basis for why we are not to curse them with our tongues. Well, if verse 26 is the negative example of worthless religion, verse 27 then is the positive example. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, James writes, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The true Christian cares for the poor and cares about being unstained from the world. To visit here has the idea of, of visiting with the purpose of providing for the needs of those who can be easily taken advantage of and who don't have the power to care for themselves, such as orphans and widows, particularly in the first century context. The Christian in whom the word of God is doing its saving work cares about social justice and works of compassion engaging in visible acts of material sacrifice. And the Christian in whom the word of God is doing its saving work also cares about personal holiness, about honesty, purity, fidelity, and so on. Well, we could have full sermons just on verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1, I realize, but I wanted to survey them quickly because I think all of this is the context within which James comes to make his primary point now in chapter 2. That as we bridle our tongues when talking about others, and as we care for the poor in concrete ways and we pursue personal holiness, what is it above all else that will characterize us as true followers of Jesus? How can we clearly tell that we have been brought forth by the word of truth? That we are receiving with meekness the implanted word that can save our souls? that we are in fact doers of the word and not hearers only? Well, the answer according to James chapter two, verses one to 13 is, we will not show partiality. My brothers and sisters show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James chapter 2, verse 1. Just let that settle for a second in light of the context we've quickly covered from chapter 1. 
We'll talk about what partiality is in a second. But first, why do I say that this is the thing above all else that reveals where we're at in terms of what James has sketched for us in chapter 1? That is, whether our religion is worthless or is pure and authentic. Well, I say that because of verse 8 and because of verse 12 in chapter 2. I think verses 8 and 12 in chapter 2 are making the same point as verse 1 is making, but that in making that point, they draw on what Jesus himself affirms is at the very heart of the law of God, which James describes for believers as the law of liberty. So look at verse 8, first of all, James chapter 2. Verse 8 says, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. In other words here, the command in verse 1 to show no partiality is the basic application of what the scripture says in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which is the Old Testament text that's quoted there in verse 8. Not showing partiality is what that central command of the Torah entails. And James quietly, subtly, at least to us, subtly reminds them here that he isn't the only one who makes this point. He calls it the royal law in verse 8, I think, because what he's saying is this. James is saying, here's how you fulfill the law as followers of King Jesus. This is the heart of what it means to be his law-keeping subjects, because he said in Matthew chapter 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. And here Jesus quotes this same verse from Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If that is what you're doing, you are doing well. James says, but he continues in verse 9, if you show partiality, that would be to go against the very heart of what Jesus himself, our king, according to the scripture itself, commands us to do. That's the point, I think. And then to really drive it home, look at verse 12, where James summarizes the whole thing this way. So speak and so act, James says, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. When you don't show partiality, but love others as you love yourself, you are acting according to what James here calls the law of liberty. Now, James does not define that phrase for us either. 
Probably because it's a common phrase. His readers evidently knew what he meant. He used the same phrase earlier in verse 25 of chapter 1, if you noticed. But what is the law of liberty? Well, my money is on the interpretation that says that the law of liberty describes the way a true believer encounters the law. That is, when someone whose heart has actually been transformed, whose sins have been forgiven, in whom the Holy Spirit now indwells, the word is implanted in them, what happens when such a person as that encounters the law of God? What is the response? Well, it's freedom. It's joy, even. It's the reality of Psalm 119. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. We ran into this kind of thinking in language that's very similar to James when we studied Galatians, where Paul, in chapter 5 of Galatians, famously says, chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. But do you remember what kind of freedom Paul was talking about there? It was not the freedom to lawlessness. Instead, it was the freedom to, in fact, keep the law, to do the law. He says in Galatians 5, verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You know what that word's going to be by now. It's Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Paul. For Paul and for James, just as for Jesus, the summary of the law of liberty is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfilling of the law, Paul says, Romans 13, verse 10. Or, one more, remember Galatians chapter 5, verse 6? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Only that counts. And I mean then that according to James 2, verse 12, that's the only thing that's going to count when the judgment day comes, brothers and sisters. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, verse 12 says. Think about that. The brother of our Lord puts showing partiality in the context of our eternal judgment. If we have been brought forth by the word of truth, if the word that can save our souls on that day of judgment is really implanted in us and we receive it meekly so that we do it, what then is the result? We live in liberty, which doesn't mean no law, but rather means we live by the royal law, the law of God, fulfilled by our King, Jesus, and who commanded his followers in its most central charge 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christians, so-called, who practice favoritism are flagrant lawbreakers. That's the basic point I think James is making in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 2. So I mean it when I say that according to James, above all else, this is what characterizes followers of Jesus. We show no partiality. But what is that? What is partiality? Well, it's sin, obviously. That's as clear as day in verse 9 of James 2. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 21 says, To show partiality is not good. What is it, then, that characterizes the sin of partiality? Well, the word itself in Greek literally combines a group of terms together that signify to accept or to judge according to face, literally is the sense of it. To judge according to the face, to accept according to the face, which gives us the nuancing here. Partiality takes a glance at someone's face, so to speak, at someone's appearance, at something external about a person, and based on that external thing, then decides how to act towards that person. So pick what you want to focus on. It could be someone's status, or their wealth, or their ancestry, or their level of education. But whatever it is, partiality is when you base your treatment of someone else or even just your attitude towards someone else, you base that on something that should not be the basis of that treatment or attitude. In James, the example of partiality focuses on riches and poverty. And you hear, in the way he describes this, the clear emphasis on the appearance, on the face, don't you? Verse 2, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, hear it, and become judges with evil thoughts, i.e., you have committed the sin of partiality. Your thoughts are evil. Why? Because they make distinctions on the basis of something that should not be the grounds for how a person is treated. It is to, in fact, dishonor the person, as verse 6 says. Now again, James here is applying this to riches and poverty. But partiality is not limited to that dimension. Partiality can be based on anything that has to do with externals, and that can include race. In Acts chapter 10, do you remember what it was that Peter, in this amazing moment, when Peter opens his mouth, 
Luke uses that language. He opens his mouth after Cornelius, the Gentile Cornelius, told Peter why he had sent for him. I know I'm jumping right into a very different context, but in Acts chapter 10, Peter had had this vision of the sheet with the clean and the unclean animals that had come down from heaven three different times, and he was told not to call clean or unclean what the Lord had made all clean, and he's trying to sort out what that means, and then he finds out that Cornelius had been told by an angel to send for him. And Cornelius says in Acts 10 verse 33 that, he and others were all gathered there to hear what Peter had been commanded by the Lord. And then Acts 10 verse 34 says this, So Peter opened his mouth and Peter said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But, and here's the implication of that, but in every nation, anyone, who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In other words, the gospel is for the whole world. It is not a matter of race or ethnic identity, not even for the Jews as God's chosen people under the old covenant. No, because God shows no partiality. You get the same kind of thing in Romans chapter 2. The Apostle Paul there in Romans 2 is dealing with the issue of Greeks and Jews. He's dealing with the ethnic and racial and religious differences. And this is what he says in Romans 2 verses 9 to 11. Sounds a lot like Peter. Quote, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For, Romans 2 verse 11, God shows no partiality. Now, I think, therefore, that we can be on solid ground to apply the thinking of James here, focused on the question of riches and poverty, to apply that same thought to the issue of race or ethnicity. If distinctions are made on the basis of race that lead to a different attitude toward or treatment of others on that basis, that is evil. It is sin and it is to be convicted by the law as transgressors, as verse 9 puts it. And if such a thing goes on without repentance and without change, there will be no salvation. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. <laughs> well, now this is the point of the sermon when I realize, and you probably already have realized, that I've probably tried to accomplish too much in it. Because now our time is running very short, and there is a lot in this passage we haven't talked about. We have, however, seen how James has framed the argument that he presents in chapter 2 in terms of the work of the Word of God in our lives, if we meekly receive it, from chapter 1. We have also seen 
how in chapter 2, verses 1 and 8 and 12 are the core concern that James has. That we show no partiality. We've seen why that is central to what it means to be doers of the word and not hearers only. As the core command of the royal law, the law of liberty. If time permitted, what then I think we would do next would be to consider all the rest of verses 1 to 13 of chapter 2. Because within the rest of the passage, what you find, I think, are several reasons that James gives for why partiality cannot characterize us as Christians. Why this is the core feature of the law. We have touched on a few of them already. I'll just mention a couple. For example, we've already touched on how in verse 4, James says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? There's a problem here with becoming judges. We assume a role we are not meant to assume in this case, and we do it with evil intent. Or another example would be verse 13, which we also mentioned. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. We could talk about the connection between showing mercy and not showing partiality. Seeing that favoritism or partiality is evidence of an unmerciful spirit. We could talk about that. There's plenty more we could say about those and other verses here in James 2. I realize that all the questions are not answered. But in the final minutes we have, let me draw your attention finally to verses 5 and 6a. Because this is, of all the different reasons you could tease out from James chapter 2 for why we are not to show partiality, this is the one that most strikes me personally. Because I think in verse 5 and 6a, we find a reason not to show partiality that will ground us in where this whole sermon series began and where next week, Lord willing, it will end. And here's how I would summarize it. I think James says in verses 5 and 6a that in showing partiality, we act contrary to the very heart of God. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, which is a classic sort of James way to say special attention on this point. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Think for just a moment on that verse. One of the fundamental problems with partiality is that it does not characterize who God is. God doesn't have a preference for the wealthy to inherit his kingdom. God, in fact, leans towards the poor. God chooses those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. And you would treat those who are poor in a lesser way within the church, which is to reflect God's kingdom? You see... James argues that to show partiality by belittling the poor isn't just about the poor. 
We belittle God when we act in such ways. And then in the process, the poor themselves are dishonored. But you have dishonored the poor man, James says in verse 6. There is honor due to all human beings as those created in the image of God. To show partiality is to ignore this profound truth. And so here at the end of this morning's sermon, I hope you can see how the same line of thinking could easily apply to partiality based on race. I think James could just as easily have written, Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those of every race and nation to be heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? It sounds like what Jesus was saying from our text a few weeks ago in Luke 4. It will be precisely what John has to say in our text next week in Revelation 5. Worthy are you, John writes. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Ultimately, partiality based on race denies the eternal glory of God. Brought about by the cross of Christ. No wonder James puts it the way he does in verse 1 of our text this morning. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ he is the Lord of glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.